We've been doing a series asking the big questions. We've asked, why Jesus? Why the Bible? Last week we asked, why is there evil in the world? And this week we're asking, why the church? Why do we need the church? It seems a little obvious tonight, doesn't it? We need the church. We think of church as meaning or being many, many things. But in my study this week, I came across a definition that I particularly like, and I think it fits us well tonight. It's this. The church is the fellowship of those given by Christ to be to each other what he has been to them so that together they can be to the world a demonstration of the new humanity. The fellowship of those given by Christ to be to each other what Christ has been to them so that together they can be to the world a demonstration of the new humanity, a foretaste of the kingdom, a glimpse into the new heaven and the new earth. That's what the church is called to be. And we do that because we remember this is what Christ has done for us and now we get to do it for others. Thanks, Elise. And this, this is how the church began. The church began with people saying, Jesus has done something for us and we're gonna do it for other people. Some of you know that after Jesus died and he rose and he ascended into heaven, the disciples gathered together later in Jerusalem for a festival, the festival of Pentecost, a harvest festival. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started to talk about Jesus in all different languages and people accused them of being drunk. And Peter, of all people, Peter, the one who had denied Jesus, Peter stands up. And he says to all of the Jews who are gathered together for a festival, he says, you all missed it. The Messiah came. And instead of listening to him, you killed him. And that's where we pick up the story. If you want, the black books in front of you are the Bibles. You can turn to Acts 2, page 886. Page 886, Acts 2, we'll read from verse 37 to 42. So Peter gives this hard word to them and says, the Messiah came, instead of listening to him, you killed him. And then we pick it up at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, 
and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And Peter testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Though those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. And now look at this. Look at these four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Those four things have been the markers of the church through time. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And each one of those things counters a lie, or more than one, that comes at us from the culture. When a tragedy happens, there are lies that bubble up. They bubble up inside us, they bubble up around us, we hear them. Maybe someone says one flippantly. People say things like, God must not love us. I don't think God cares anymore. Obviously, God isn't powerful. Or this one, which is particularly slippery, God must have wanted this. Let me be clear that that is a lie. Let us remember that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have witnessed that God is a first responder when it comes to death. Let us remember that God is not the origin of evil. Let us remember that God is not the origin of death. Let us remember that he is working every day, every moment to move us, all of us, from death to life. That's God. Is there sin in the world? Yes. Does it smack us in the face every now and then? Yes. Do we wonder why God lets stuff happen? Yes. But does he cause it? Is he responsible for it? Is he the origin of it? No. It's important to say these things out loud because the lies of the world buffet us. If you walked outside on Wednesday, you know what it's like to be buffeted by the winds. You could hardly stand up. Trees were toppled over. The lies of the world are like that. They try to push us around day after day after day, and we need good preaching and good teaching because it allows us to walk into a wind block and remember truth. And it's easy to say, well, that's the job of the preachers and the teachers, but that's your job. That's our job as church, is to claim truth, to speak truth, to speak back against the lie. And whether that's a lie about life and death, or it's a lie about body image, or sexuality, or money, or power, we speak truth. 
We speak the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that is given to us. This is life-giving and this is power and we proclaim it. And this is a mark of the church. If you are with a Christian community that is not speaking truth, that is not speaking gospel, then friends, that is not church. We need church. We need the wind blocks. We need the safe havens. We need the place where the truth can ring out and we can stand up straight again. You're preaching and teaching. It's a bedrock of the church. The second thing that they did was fellowship. And it's easy to think of fellowship as like, you know, the cups of coffee in the back of church after the worship service. That's like fellowship. That's one idea of fellowship. But just as preaching counters lies, Christian fellowship counters at least two important lies. One of them says, I didn't know her. I'm not in her major. I'm not in her building. I can keep distant from this. This doesn't really affect me. That is untrue. Because it doesn't matter if you live in Gamma, or if you lived in Ruxvendelen, or you're a speech path major. It doesn't even matter if your email address ends with calvin.edu. What matters is that you've been called to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we are taught that when one member of the body is suffering, all of us suffer. And we are, set, we are taught that when one rejoices, we rejoice with that person. And when someone weeps, we weep with that person. And for those of us who may not be in the inner circle, who may not have been up all night last night, we may be more able to care for them because we've been able to sleep and we can remind them to sleep and we've been able to eat and we can remind them to sleep and we can pray even when they can't. Fellowship says, I will counter the lie that there is distance between me and a brother or sister and I will move toward them even when and especially when it costs me something. The other lie is to say no one gets my pain. No one knows how bad I am hurting. And I will isolate myself and stay away because nobody gets it. It's tempting. But the truth is when we speak our pain to another, that's when healing begins. C.S. Lewis once said that friendship begins when someone looks someone else in the eye and says, you too? I thought I was the only one. This afternoon, after I got off the phone with Chad, Tara's boyfriend, I connected with a young man named Spencer. Spencer was the boyfriend of Chase Frozy, who died a year and a half ago when she drowned in Lake Michigan. And I wrote to Spencer and I said, I know this may stir up stuff for you that you're not ready to go at. Maybe you just don't want to do this, but I need to, to ask. Would you be willing to connect with Chad? 
And it wasn't minutes later, it was seconds later. He wrote me back and he said, absolutely. And he's here. He graduated. He's here tonight. Because it's easy to think, nobody gets my pain. But let me tell you something. Tonight, Chad is not alone. And Spencer is not alone. That's fellowship. It's saying, I lived through the pain. And I will take your hand and walk with you. That's fellowship. That's the mark of the church. That we reach outside of ourselves for the sake of another because that's what Jesus did for us. The preaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. In his commentary on the book of Acts, N.T. Wright says that this phrase, the breaking of bread, was the phrase that was used by the early church to describe their repetition of the feast that Jesus had with his disciples. They didn't quite know what to do with it or what it all meant, but they knew from the disciples that something significant had happened in that particular breaking of bread, and so they repeated it and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it until we repeat it here. It's become a sacrament. And we heard how when the people were just ripped apart by what Peter said, and they said, what are we supposed to do? He said, repent and be baptized. And baptism became a mark of the church. And the breaking of bread became a mark of the church, and we call these things sacraments. And these two things... These two things counter the lie that church is all about you. Because if you were baptized as a little baby person, you know probably that the theology says this is a replacement for circumcision. This is saying you are now part of the covenant people of God. This is about all of us, not just about you. And if you were baptized older, you come from a tradition where people are older when they baptized, you are very well aware that baptism is something that happens in a church body. And maybe you had a sponsor. Maybe you had somebody who walked with you. Maybe you had somebody who had said to you, let's figure this out together. I am with you in this. And you were baptized and you came up and you knew very clearly this was not about you. And when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we remember the Lord's death and resurrection. We remember that church is not about me and my feelings and my preferences. We remember that the church of Jesus Christ is about Jesus Christ. It's about his death and his resurrection and his ascension and the promise of his coming again. When we participate in the sacraments, it reminds us that this isn't about us. This is about all of us, and this is about Jesus. We need the sacraments. And we need prayer.
The phrasing in the text says, the prayers. And that's a nod toward the Jewish prayer book because all of these new believers were all Jews who had a prayer book. They had the Psalms. And to pray the Psalms, to go through the Psalms with a rhythm and ritual of Jewish life. And let me remind you, friends, that many, many, many Psalms are Psalms of lament. Psalms in which the person grabs God by the lapels and says, I don't get it. What are you doing here? Why did you do that? Why can't you show up the way I want you to show up? Where are you right now? Psalm 88 is a psalm that ends by saying, darkness is my closest friend. Now, you would think an editor that wanted to make people look good would have taken that one out. But it's in, and it remains in the songbook, the prayer book of the church, because we believe that in the covenant promises of our God, we can go to him with our whole selves, with all that we are experiencing, because he wants to be in connection with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He doesn't want us to hide He wants us to be real. The temptation, the lie, is to say, God doesn't care. The temptation, the lie, is to say that prayer doesn't matter. The temptation, the lie, is to say, I can do nothing in this situation. The truth is that God listens to the prayers of his people. Do we understand how that works? We do not. Do we know that Jesus invites us to pray, to ask whatever we will, to pray boldly and persistently, to pray without giving up? Yes. And so when we put news out and we say, please pray, for these people who are deeply in mourning. It's not because we think, I don't know what else to do, and I'll just pray for them. We're saying that because we actually believe that there's nothing more powerful than to take hurting people and bring them before the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and ask for Almighty God to show up in their lives in every way that they need it. We believe that God responds to the prayers of his people. We believe that prayer shapes the life of the church. We don't know how. It's a mystery, but it works. The church is still here. Sometimes people ask me why I believe. And one of the reasons is that the church is still here. I was a pastor of a church for eight years, and let me tell you something. The church exists on people's leftover time and leftover money. The only way it is sustained is because it is true, because the Holy Spirit is carrying it, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, because God is up to something big, and he wants to use us. That's church. Church is the gathering of people by Jesus Christ 
so that we can do for other people what God and Christ has done for us, and in so doing, show everybody what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like. That's church. And that's what we get to be for each other this week. We get to be church. We get to be used by God to speak against the lies. Let God use you this week to speak truth. Let God use you this week to build fellowship. Let God use you this week to remind people that this is about Jesus Christ. Let God use you this week to pray. This is how we church, even in our sorrow, because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus.